Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, today's episode is all about making music matter more in midlife with Adriana Barton. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach and midlife mentor, and I am so glad to be here with you again. But just quick, before I get into this amazing episode, if you want to find out more about how to get unstuck and live your best life in the middle, head on over to www.susierosenstein.com forward slash 10 questions and grab your free copy of my 10 insightful questions to reimagine your life after 50. Okay, now let me tell you about who I'm interviewing today. I'm really excited for you to meet her too because of what she has to teach us about music, health, and joy. My guest is Adriana Barton and she has a super fascinating background. She's a mid-career journalist, a former staff reporter at Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, and the author of a new book coming out in October 2022, Wired for Music, A Search for Health and Joy Through the Science of Sound. Adriana also had a serious and intense music background. She was a very young child when she began studying the cello, which she did for 17 years until injury put an end to her classic music career. As a journalist, her writing on health, science, visual arts, architecture, music, and pop culture has appeared in publications including Western Living, Vancouver Magazine, Black Flash, San Francisco Bay Guardian, and more. Adriana is wrapping up the book I mentioned, Wired for Music. Drawing from neuroscience, anthropology, and evolutionary biology, her book argues that music is much more than entertainment or a rarefied art form. It's an age-old system to boost human health, connect us to teach each other, even at a chemical level, and add meaning, resilience, and joy. Her research for the book and journalism assignments have taken her to Syria, Jordan, India, Zimbabwe, and Brazil. She lives now in Vancouver, Canada with her husband and son. You know, one of the reasons I really love this interview with Adriana is because her book is also about how she reconsidered her own relationship with music and how her midlife journey brought her back to using music as a way to nourish her soul. You are really going to love this interview. Please enjoy. Hi, Adriana. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Women in the Middle podcast. Hi, Susie. Really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh my gosh, I am excited to have you on today. Not just to hear your story, but really your musical journey. I love music and musicians and and just how important music is in so many of our lives. I want to hear more about your path that for decades had so many twists and turns that you could never have anticipated, but kept you leaning forward in a way that eventually all made sense. So I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about that musical journey. What was your experience? How did you get involved with music growing up? Let's start there. Well, it's quite a long story, and I'll try and give you the highlights. 
essentially my mother really wanted my older sister and I to experience music because it had been a a big part of her life. Uh, She didn't have a lot of money though. So we lived in small town Quebec and she found out that there was a music conservatory that offered free lessons. And so, but this conservatory was um, modeled after the great conservatories of Europe. They were not messing around. They wanted people to be very serious about music if they were to be accepted. What I didn't know, and I was five, I didn't know I was essentially auditioning. I was taken to this institution, and that's the right word for it. It was this flat, it could be a prison or a, you know, some kind of government building is what it looked like. And I was brought in. And originally, my older sister and I were both going to play violin. That's what my mother wanted us Mm. to do. But the first, there was a a, a cello teacher who was sort of hunting for students, because at the time, it was not a popular instrument. No one really even knew what it was. Uh, For years, when I did play, and I'd I'd be bringing my cello on the bus, people will say, what's that? Like, it really was not popular. There was no There was no Bond movie with the, you know, the gorgeous woman on the cello getaway sled at the time. (laughs) Yo-Yo Ma was not a household name. It was early days in the cello fame. And so I'm brought into this building. I'm five years old. And uh, and this man with gray hair is saying, do you want to play the cello? And I'm I'm thinking, jello. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Give me some cello because my mom was a health food nut. This was a a special offer. And so uh, I'm brought into this room and there are all these adults on at this table and they look very stern and they're dressed up and official. He's looking for a chair, but I'm really small. And so he takes the, the waste paper basket and tips it upside down and has me sit on that. And then he's, I'm sort of handed a cello. It's a quarter size. So itty bitty cello. And, and just given a bow and told how to hold it and, and give it a go. And he sort of looks at my hands and stretches the fingers and are they strong enough? And, and that was my first experience. Of wow. <laughs> and I kind of made this screechy sound and, and he said, no, 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 not like that. And then had me try again. And then I felt something quite astounding to me as a young person. And my mom had raised me well and, I'm trying to express this. I'm like, I can feel it in my bottom. (laughs) So basically the vibrations I could feel all through my body as a very small child. And I wanted them to know this because it was very surprising to me. (laughs) I didn't say bum because I knew that would be not, oh, it's kind of a formal environment here. (laughs) Even at five, I could, I, I knew that. And that was my first moment with, with an instrument like that. Um, wow. Did you fall in love right away? I don't remember that part. I just remember the experience, the shocking experience of playing it. Um, and then everything changed after that. Mm. So what happened? I was put into this quite brutal system, I think, for a five-year-old. I, I did not speak French. We were an English-speaking family living in Quebec during the time of the separatist movement. So it wasn't that cool to be an English-speaking family in Quebec at the time. And there were no exceptions. So I, I was placed in theory lessons and ear training lessons and orchestra and private lessons. 
So quite a few lessons every week in a classroom with, um, with teenagers who are French speaking and sitting there uh, being taught concepts in a language I literally did not understand. And uh, there was a, the threat of immediate expulsion. If you were to miss more than three lessons in a year, you're expelled. Uh, so because I did well enough in the private lessons with the teacher, um, they just had me fail for a few years, those other lessons, until I knew enough French that I could actually understand the lesson. But I'm sitting there literally as a five, six, seven-year-old late at night, um, enduring this babbling in French that I didn't understand about abstract concepts that I didn't understand for several years. And um, then there was the teacher itself, himself um, being very demanding of my progress and, and uh, great expectation for daily practice, at least an hour a day, even at six or seven, and then progressively more demands for more practice. And at quite an uh, in, intense um, physical demand too. Uh, and if I were to show you, maybe I will, On, I have a, a hand <laughs> years later that will stretch an inch more on one hand than the other, because he'd sort of pull the hand apart to reach wow. the notes, you know, and my, my left shoulder still sticks up a little higher than the other. And um, it colonized my life, essentially, the, the, the requirements of this very formal um, and strict conservatory. And then things, there was a, a ripple effect as I progressed uh, through my music training, which continued. I did my first bachelor degree in uh, cello performance. Wow. So we'll get back to that in a second. But I'm having flashbacks to when I started playing saxophone. And I can't even tell you how different my experience was than yours. <laughs> I started when I was 10 in fourth grade and I picked saxophone because my mom played saxophone and I actually got her horn. And I had that horn for a very long time until I dropped it and squished it and took it to be repaired. And <laughs> I'm not going to imitate this guy's accent, but it was so funny when he told me how pathetic my horn was <laughs> in a thick accent. And I looked at him because I couldn't really understand what he said. And then I realized he said Drek. And it was, <laughs> he said it was Drek. And I purchased something new as an adult in my 40s. Yeah, it was in my 40s. It was beautiful to have a decent instrument. But, you know, I had a, a really fun experience in the band, even though when, when you really don't know how to play saxophone, it's horrible uh, sounding to anybody listening. But wow, it wasn't strict at all like yours. So you had a, an adult professional experience in another language as a very young child. I can't, I'm kind of surprised you were motivated to pursue music in high school, in university with those beginnings, actually. Well, there was a lot going on in our family. Uh, and I, you're right. My, my first teacher was a serious man. He, he was a, a cellist with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra, which mm. was quite renowned. And he taught uh, students at the uh, Université de Montreal. So the, the university students. And if you're going to be his student, you're not going to be wasting his time. He would drive right. from, from Montreal to Hull, which is where my conservatory was for a day a week to do the private lessons with the people who were worth his time. Wow. And so you asked, why did I continue? Well, a few things. Uh, in our family, there was a lot going on, and I won't go into detail, but it was quite a chaotic home um, and quite a few children. And um, my mother was uh, a vibrant artist, and my uh, stepfather 
worked for the government and they were very busy in their lives. And um, it was the one, I would say the one thing about me that they considered special that, Mm. that got me attention and got me love, got me um, recognition in the family. And, and so it it did become my self-worth essentially. And uh, I had this sense around age 13 to leave my first teacher and leave the conservatory. And there was this brief period. Uh, The thing is, if that's all you do when, as a young person, that's all you are. Yeah. I wasn't doing sports. I wasn't hanging out a lot with friends. My mom wasn't the kind of mom who was hanging out with other fra- uh, families with kids my age. I was at that conservatory so much. And in, in addition to that, my younger brother had congenital heart defects. So my parents were trying to keep him alive. They were driving him back in the, and forth to the hospital. So the conservatory was somewhere to put me <laughs> while they're struggling to keep my, my brother alive. And so th- there was just a lot going on. And so when something becomes so much part of your life, it becomes who you are and, and you, you develop a sense of pride and music is wonderful in lots of ways. And I think the structure and the, maybe the music appealed to me too. I, you know, of course it did. Uh, and, but as I said, I had the sense to leave my first teacher when I was around 13 and I studied with um, a teacher at the National Arts Center and Orchestra, who was a wonderful man. And really, I progressed a lot with him. And there was a lot more freedom and artistry involved in our work together, which is why I, but I still, I had this, my early teacher had instilled in me this urgency, like, you have to be good, you have to progress quick, quick, quick. So I actually uh, auditioned uh, to study in the States at age 16 and got into wow. university at age 16. Um, I, I, well, I got into it and I went shortly after my 17th birthday, but I was really quite young to be leaving Canada, uh, you know, studying remotely. There was a whole, it, it wasn't a, a one moment decision to pursue mu- music. It was, it, it just became, it had a life of its own. And yeah, that's yeah. what it sounds like. So you, you got a degree in, in performance and then how did you end up being a journalist? Well, I was injured as a cellist. Uh, I, be, I developed tendonitis. So there was a, um, a physical breakdown. And I think some of that was also an emotional breakdown. I realized my body started to say no. I got yeah. ganglion cysts in each wrist, which are the size of a, a marble. And uh, I was taken to the Cleveland Clinic because they had a new performance department to help performance artists. But I, I realized at some point, and I, I, I talk about this in, in the book, the many events that led to my leaving music. And it was a very, very difficult decision, probably the dif- most difficult of my life, one of the most difficult of my life. Uh, so there were quite a few things that led to that. But I think my body was just telling me, stop. And it took me a while to listen to those messages. Um, and how did I get into journalism? Well, that's kind of a funny story because I was uh, I was a cello grad, and Montreal at the time was in the midst of an economic depression. I needed a job. I needed to pay rent, and the only job I could find was as the receptionist at Montreal's home of rock and roll, Shome FM. So I don't know if you remember WKRP in Cincinnati. Yes, I, I was do. Basically, Loni Anderson greeting. <laughs> Hi, Meatloaf. Hi, Alice Cooper. I didn't even know who these people were, but they were coming into the, and I had to 
Shoulder, uh, you know, Show Me Femme, Goldies, uh, Oldies 990, Bonjour. I had to answer the, the phone probably seven times a day in both languages and switch and give people their, their prizes that they come into the radio station that they'd won on air. And, and, and there were, you know, there were DJs running around and whatever. And I had a, a brief little fling, shall I say, uh, with a newscaster who is my age in the, in the newsroom. And I thought, oh, his job looks cool. Oh, that's great. There was this performance element, but also a way to learn about the world. So I'd, I'd been in a practice room for 17 years, classical music, 17 years in a practice room. And I wanted to learn about the world. And I thought journalism would, would help me with that. And it did. So it was a great decision. And I, I ended up enrolling um, in a graduate program uh, in Montreal uh, shortly after that little love affair. And, uh, and I really took to journalism quite quickly and, and really enjoyed it. That's great. I, that's why I love doing these backstories, because I'm very concerned with, you know, telling the story of your path, because you never know where a path is going to take you. And we always in midlife think, well, we're on the wrong path. But really, there's roots. There's roots to the path that you're on. If you look carefully, roots and clues. And, and I just love that. So you're humming along as a journalist, and then something happens in your late 30s and 40s when you start to feel stuck and, and you know that something is a little bit off. Can you talk about that? In my case, I had my child fairly late. Uh, I was 37, and I did mat leave like everybody else, and I had a child who would not sleep. Uh, he really was one of those kids who would not sleep uh, in a crib for more than a year. Uh, I, I, he was on my back for every nap because wow. if he didn't nap, he'd be very cranky, you know, tried the crying out that didn't work. I mean, days of that uh, would not sleep in a car seat, would not sleep in a stroller or a swing or a little, like, you know, I would cook with him strapped to me. <laughs> he just wouldn't settle. He was very, very lively. And, uh, and uh, I was absolutely exhausted. And we didn't have family nearby who could help. And my husband was just launch launching his business. Um, and I, he didn't anticipate how much uh, of his time it would require. So he was working, this is the irony, he was working weekends for the first time in our relationship. <laughs> so I was really, and, and I tried to hire a nanny or a, a, a sitter just to, you know, go and get something done. And, and the person I hired said, no, this baby needs to be with his mom all the time because wow. he'd scream the whole time. So it was kind of an extreme case, but also um, I think that I was just uh, very attached. And, and, and so there was a, a few things going on there. Uh, but you know, nine months in, I was kind of losing my mind. <laughs> and I was trudging through the streets as rainy. And then I see this flyer on a lamppost and it's advertising a, an African movement workshop. And there's this woman on the flyer and she's got this drum and she's just beaming and gorgeous. And I, it spoke to me and I thought, maybe I'm going to just see if I could get my husband to look after the baby for two hours and I'm going to do this. And I did. And something happened in this session where I described the scene in the book and I won't repeat it all because it'll take too long. But there was a moment where I just felt 
the sounds of, of a marimba carrying me, lifting mm-hmm. me. Physic, it felt like I was being carried. And after carrying my baby for so many hours, I just broke down. I felt this cathartic surge of relief. And, and I hadn't felt that before, from music in that way before. Well, maybe I had, I had, but not any time recently or not in a way that I, where I put the two dots together. And so it was this call to get back to music in my life. You know, the image I had right away was the vibration of the marimba and the vibration you noticed when you were a little girl. And it, it it's the music speaking to you again in some way. And you've been disconnected for some time because it was so negative for you. I think it's fascinating that it was something related to percussion that so different than the training you'd received. But in well, the I end, music is music. I think that's why it worked. Because had it been a cello or a classical music, I would have had the baggage and the triggers with it. Yes. But with the marimba, like you say, it had vibration, but it was something different, something new, uh, no strings attached to it, literally no strings. And I could feel, I could open myself to that music in a way that I maybe couldn't to music I really knew well. Um, and it was a beautiful, exuberant feeling, and I needed to have more of it. <laughs> I <laughs> understand. No strings attached. I mean, how can you not even pause on that with a with a pun? You, I mean, that's such a pun. That that must be such a pun in your life. In my family, when something's punny like that, we go crazy. <laughs> well, I called, right. I named my first chapter that uh, <laughs> "Strings Attached" because oh. that was the beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's so perfect. That's so perfect. That's such a beautiful story. So beautiful. Okay, so now you found music again in a weird way. So what happened next? Well, at first, I just muddled along in the the postpartum uh, state I was in, but there was something that had shifted in that moment. And, you know, as a journalist, I'm very leery of woo-woo stuff, you know? So uh, later on, I would find out what might have happened in my brain at that point. It sounds like a born-again moment, which is very uncomfortable, but it kind of (laughs) was. And it was, like you say, a call. And and so uh, after some time, I ended up taking uh, drum lessons with the leader of the workshop. And that uh, launched me into a variety of different ways of making music, which I do today, in a way that I talk about as being a proud amateur And what we forget in the English language, and this is something I saw while my family was in France for a year, is that in Italy and Portugal and France, they haven't forgotten the Latin root of the word amateur. Here we say rank amateur as though it's this horrible insult, but the root is amare, to love. An amateur is somebody who loves something so much. And, and so I call myself an amateur because I don't play any instrument extremely well I, anymore. I, I just love it. I, I play it for what it does for me, not for what it makes me be. Mm. Oh, that's so important. And by the way, this calling, um, so many midlife women speak about it as a wake-up call. So it's not a woo-woo concept as a wake-up call. The way I think about it is something jarring. I'm not minimizing that you had a very powerful experience, but it's something jarring that caused you to pause. It shook you up enough 
that you looked at it in a different, like you saw music differently than you had in quite some time. And I mean, you know, when that happens in life, it's hard not to notice it. I absolutely agree. And for me, it was having to reconsider or reconfigure is a better word, what it is to, to interact with music. Exactly. You know, I had reached such a, a high level and the expectations were so demanding. Um, I had to have a different self-concept around music. That's what it was. Yeah. And that is what, you know, as much as I don't like to say midlife crisis, um, really what it, what a midlife crisis speaks to is an identity shift, you know, and, and it's just for whatever reason, age and stage combination, it was time to reconsider that relationship that you had with music in such a beautiful way. I mean, I just love that story. Okay. So you're humming along and then you end up eventually leaving your job as a health reporter. So what happened there? My family had a a gap year. I I organized this by uh, selling my book idea um, to a publisher. And that that was a very long process, but I won't drag you through it. Um, My husband had, that was part of his midlife shift because he had traveled a lot before we met. Uh, he, He spent two years traveling, in fact. And uh, as, as a midlife thing, he wanted us to experience what he had experienced as a family. Wow. And so, uh, you know, at first I'm like, how are we going to make that work financially, our jobs, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but he had it all figured out. So it was really more a question of him cajoling me. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll do it if, if I can somehow wrap it into the book project that I have. And, um, and he agreed. And uh, then I got the book deal, which I then used. It's not common in in my industry to take a, a year off, but there was support to do that. Um, and so the understanding is that I would come back to the job at the end. Um, what happened was that we had this year away. We went to almost 15 countries as wow. a family, although we were based in France. How old and was your child at that time? 10. Wow. So, uh, you know, we we took him to Africa. He saw the animals in Tanzania, which was incredible. We went to a remote village in Zimbabwe, where I did uh, research on uh, a different way of interacting with music, shall we say, than we have here. And it was wonderful. And uh, at the end of the year, there was a a buyout offer from the Globe and Mail and uh, to all the employees. And my husband looked at me and said, well, what if you didn't go back? And it sort of stunned me because it's part of my identity too now to be a journalist. And at first I wasn't going to consider that idea. Uh, But I I had this year away from having journalism be my primary identity. People related to me as me in France and the the various places we went to. And so I, I, booked an emergency call with a counselor that my friend had recommended, not someone I'd worked with before. And I told her, you know, my thought process. And she said, well, it sounds like your parents are declining and are going to need your help. And, you know, you've got menopause coming and you've got this book, which you've only just started. (laughs) I didn't (laughs) write my book while I was away. (laughs) I'll be perfectly (laughs) honest. (laughs) And, and then this quite demanding job. So I, she said I, it was helpful because she was someone who gave her honest opinion. She said, I don't really see how all these things are going to happen at the same time. You, you probably have to choose like something has to go. Obviously, my parents aren't going to go. Uh, physical <laughs> things aren't going to change. 
So it was the job in the book. Well, do I not want to write a book? Well, actually, I still do want to write this book. And it was a difficult decision, but I thought, you know, I'm going to, I've been doing this job for a while and I'm pretty good at it. And I like, I like the job, but I thought, well, maybe it's time to do something else uh, and leap into the unknown. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know what the next thing will be after I launch my book this fall. You know, I, I have no, no idea, but I, I think that it's all happening the way it needs to unfold. And I feel confident about that. You know what's so beautiful again with this path, even though you don't know what's going to happen next, it's so obvious what's happening, you know, because music has come back and you're looking at music a little differently instead of being a performer. It's come back in so many ways. It's the topic of your book. It combines the work you did as a health reporter. Very and, much so. And your your writing, which is what you did as a journalist. With an inquisitive, curious mind, you're weaving together a different story. So it's so obvious, right? When you really think about it that way, if, if somebody would have said, well, it's a musician and a health reporter and a writer and a curious person and somebody who liked to travel and tell stories, like, what do you think would come out at the other end? Oh, <laughs> here we go, you know, with a really cool idea for a book. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your book, which is all about the health effects of music. It's called Wired for Music, A Search for Health and Joy Through the Science of Sound, soon to be published by Greystone this fall, 2022. So I need to hear more because I know you mentioned that even the book in its conception went through a bit of a transition. So how did you figure out what you wanted to write about? Well, here's something I think is relevant to the midlife journey, and one thing that happened to me was that I was feeling I needed a change. And I've, I've listened to some of your podcasts, Susie, and you talk about that kind of itchy, unsettled, hungry feeling that people get. And yeah. I was having that. And so um, I actually applied for a PhD program after getting so jazzed up about uh, music and playing it again. And wow, I'm learning all kinds of things about music that I didn't really get before. I was pretty fired up. And, and meanwhile, at the, at the job, I was seeing all this new upsurge of, of neuroscience work done on music, which wasn't coming. That, we've only started to see what music can do for the brain. And that only the, the, the critical mass of research only began in the late 90s. And it's grown by leaps and bounds since then. And I was watching all this happening at my job as a health journalist at the Globe and Mail. And so... Um, I applied for this PhD program in ethnomusicology. And that was a process of its own because there were essays to write and, you know, uh, meetings with the, the profs, et cetera, application process. I went through all that despite being a busy mother. And I was accepted uh, into the program. And then um, a friend said, uh, spend the weekend reading the theses that have come out of the program and ask yourself, do you want to spend five years doing that? And it was excellent advice. And I did that. And I thought, I don't know, I, I'll be commuting when my child's just starting kindergarten. And, you know, suddenly our, we'd have less money. And, and then at the end of five years, maybe 15 people in the world will read <laughs> what I've produced. <laughs> and I'm really used to being read. And, and so I, as, as interested as I was in pursuing that, I didn't. And so 
then there, then there was this experience of um, a book publisher uh, inviting me to pitch story ideas uh, because that publisher liked my work in, in the paper. And so we met for coffee and I had a, you know, a list of saleable book ideas all laid out. And he said, well, these are all interesting. I think they could all, you could do something with any of these. Do you have anything else? And then I told him, well, I have this geeky interest in music and the brain and this backstory with the cello. And he's like, that's the one. (laughs) So then I produced a book proposal, which one does. And, um, and it, it, it just didn't really work. So when my family went to Africa and I spent time looking at how music had been used as a healing strategy, and when I dove more into the, the research on, on um, other communities around the world that have used music traditionally, two things happened. I could see that in this day and age, it's really not my story to tell, uh, speaking for other uh, groups. Um, and also the, the, the book idea, which was to um, explore the parallels between new neuroscience and ancient wisdom was just too academic and unrelatable for, for most people <laughs> yeah. other than true geeks like me. And so at, at one point, and this is partway through our gap year, I, I had a call with the publisher and I said, you know, I think it has to be a rethink. And he agreed. And I gave myself permission to maybe I'm not writing a book. You know, I hadn't received my advance yet. I, I, I sat with that for a few weeks. And then I had a dream, which I don't need to tell you about, that told me that really I should write this book. And then from that time on, the book became what it be- is now, which is, you know, a journey through my own baggage around music. And the book very much combines story and science. So, the, the, it's not at all a slog to read because you're always seeing something unfolding in either my life or in our culture that has distanced or brought us closer to music. And, um, and so the, the book became not at all intentionally a physical, tra- a personal transformation, I suppose. Um, and a, a re, you said, we, by going through our stories, we reimagine them and I do feel more at peace with this part of my life than I ever have. And I think that in midlife, it's a time to do that. Do you want to have the same story about your life that you always had? Is is it time to let some of the pain points go and reimagine them? Exactly. Does it serve, does that story serve you anymore? And, you know, I think what you've really done is restored this intimate relationship with music that you've had your whole life even though it wasn't always positive, it's, it's restored it and it's nourished you in a way that, you know, how can you, can you even imagine living without music? I cannot. Right. But you had chosen to minimize it in so much of a way that uh, something that nourished you so deeply wasn't part of your life and it needed to be. And it did so symbolic, you know, I didn't play music for about uh, 15 years wow. of my life, uh, and and that was painful, in fact. And when I got back to music with the different instruments I now play, I realized that there's this tactile pleasure in fingers for me mm. that that it's almost like, you know how an octopus, each arm has its own brain? 
I felt like my fingers had their own brain that were having their own experience separate from my cognitive you know, thoughts about playing music or whatever. They just were so happy to be plucking again or, or moving in that way again, even though it wasn't the instrument I had learned. That's amazing. I'm just curious, did your son hear you playing music as a child? No, only once. And of course, now with recent instruments, I guess, do you mean the cello or? I meant the cello, but it could be anything. No, only once. But when I got into the drumming and the mbira, which is a a Zimbabwean instrument um, plucked with metal tines on a, on a, a wooden slab, there are about 24 keys. Um, that instrument he really did enjoy. And for a while, he wanted me to play it outside his door while he was going to sleep. <laughs> Not anymore, but, but uh, yeah, but he didn't hear. Um, yeah, but what I've done with my son with, with music is a whole other story, but definitely um, he did start to hear the drums and, and went to, to performances I did with my group and things like that. We played once at his school's spring festival. Oh, that's amazing. Fun. I mean, I just, I just had a feeling that he hadn't when I, when you were telling the story, I know we didn't talk about it in the pre-interview, but I just had a feeling. And, you know, as you were telling the story of the baggage and how negative music was for you, I didn't think it was shared, but it was, it's such a huge part of you and, and your identity. And it was something that your son, you know, didn't have a connection with at all or an understanding at that time. And my husband doesn't know me as a child wow. either. Wow. He knows it as a concept, but not as part of our lives. Wow. And do you play it all now? No, not the cello. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Someday I might. I mean, interestingly, through the the, the writing, I, I've i had little urges and inklings uh, to do that in the first for the first time in, in a very long time. But it's not sort of a burning need I have because I do feel so enriched by the other things that I do musically. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, this makes me so happy. So how would you say that this book that you're writing is different than other books about music and health and the brain? There are some wonderful books about music and uh, Oliver Sacks' book, Musicophilia, is absolutely charming. Daniel Levitin's seminal book on uh, This Is Your Brain on Music, um, that's a wonderful book too. What's different is for for one thing when uh, when Len- Levitin wrote that book that's really well known, one of the most momentous discoveries about music hadn't been made yet, and that is they've shown this with with um, brain scanning. Music actually stimulates dopamine in the brain in a measurable way, and it it has all kinds of downstream effects that flow from that. And that had not been um, it, it was thought to, to happen, but it had not been unequivocally uh, proven before uh, it, that happened after Levitin's book. So there's, there's a lot of recent science that's happened in the interim. That's one thing that's different. And another is just the, um, the personal stories woven throughout. A lot of neat little hacks that I've, I've included in the book, I, I, you could call them tips, but also more of an emphasis on, on personal health and, and personal uses for music and, and not as much theory. Oh, I love that. And one thing that I, I wanted to follow up with you about, um, I know that your chapters cover mood and exercise, productivity, healthy aging, spiritual growth, that sort of thing. I would love if you could talk about aging a, a little bit. 
Well, aging, there are a few things. Uh, One thing my book doesn't do is go into a lot of music therapy and clinical uses of music, which is now happening and being studied very rigorously. I I didn't do that because there's so much that I I decided that should have its separate book. Maybe I'll write that book sometime. I don't know. (laughs) But for now, it's more based about on things that you can do for you. There, the research is in its infancy, but there is some um, idea that that music might have a protective effect on some of our cognition, and I say that uh, in a circumspect way because it it's not fully, fully, fully confirmed. But they have done studies with people in their seventies and eighties, for example, who have never played the piano before, and after a certain period of piano lessons. The ones who do that versus the ones who don't seem to perform better on certain tests of memory and executive functioning, which is pretty incredible. That needs to be replicated, and we need a lot more research on that. Um, another area is that they're finding, and this is brand new research in December, uh, it's December 2021, that when people with early Alzheimer's listen to music uh, every day for several weeks, for a certain period of time, um, music that they know from their past, they too showed a slight bump in cognition uh, in various parts of the brain. So a, a, a slight bump in executive um, activity in the brain, but also in a memory test, they had slightly better scores than they had before. And again, small numbers of people, small study, early work, needs to be replicated, more research done, but there's so little we can do for Alzheimer's that any little thing that you can do is helpful. And uh, certainly in nursing homes, uh, it's been studied in more than 250 California nursing homes. When they put in the the music and and memory program that was featured in that documentary film, Alive Inside, they were able to reduce the uh, amount of antidepressant medication and antipsychotics and people did better with personalized playlists in in the nursing homes. But then there are social angles. So we know that loneliness is a real issue for people over age 60. And it actually um, increases your chances of dementia to be lonely. And one of the great things, I have a whole chapter on this, but I had to flick at it again in the aging chapter. Music helps people bond quicker it reduces loneliness. They did a study where they took people in older ages and, and had some of them enroll in creative writing. And some, so it was like an adult education center. They had them do different courses. The ones who sang together bonded together quicker than the ones who... So at the end of seven months, everybody got to know each other in all the different groups. But the, the music group, they were feeling warm fuzzies after a few weeks instead of months. Oh, that's so making call- me so happy. We're, we're putting money right now and resources and a lot of thought into uh, turning our living room into a listening room. And it is super fun. And I've got 20 somethings and it has really helped us bond. I mean, we're sharing music. I'm very open to uh, recommendations and, and they're really interested in my jazz playlists. And <laughs> that's terrific. It's, it's been so great. And and they're coming up with fun ideas. Like one of them wanted um, some lighting, but his ideas about lighting far exceeded anything I would have come up with because it wasn't just like a, an uplight on a plant. It was also some crazy lighting on the ceiling. <laughs> and now they want, they want it to um, 
uh, sync with the music. Now, we haven't done all oh, of this yet. But your personal rave. I guess so. I don't know what it looks like from the street. <laughs> it's fun, though. And they just reimagined the space. It's a really it's a Brady Bunch house. And the living room has a slanted ceiling. And it is amazing. And uh, anyway, so we're having fun with that. But it is increasing our bonding, too. And I'm learning new music. And there is actually some research showing that uh, teenagers who, who interact with music with their, their parents have a better relationship with them later on. And you could say, well, that's just because they were close to begin with. But no, they found that it had a stronger effect than eating together or playing board games, for instance. Oh, my and, gosh. And so you're that's on the amazing. right track, Susie. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is so good. So another thing you mentioned that I thought was really, really interesting was how you can use music to your advantage. And in the podcast and in my work, um, I, I love talking about how to be more intentional in midlife. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I have lots of tips in my book. Uh, and and I think that you'll see in the chapters on exercise and mood and that sort of thing, there are lots of um, science elements that you can use. But here's a little thing that it just came up in my life. Uh, my husband really finds that meditation helps him feel calmer at work and um, just more chilled out and able to pause before reacting to something. And so he really finds a lot of benefit from it, but he, he struggles to get himself to do it every day. So he's always asking me to be his meditation partner. And I don't like meditation. <laughs> and part of it, I think I probably have triggers from my past because my mom was this, you know, Zen Buddhist for a while. And so I just, I struggle with it because there's family baggage around it. My father was that's a whole other story. Uh, I, I, I don't love doing that. Uh, I love to support my husband, but I don't love meditating. And I, after doing the bulk of the research on the book, I just had this little brainwave. Well, music does a lot of the same things in the brain. And it's been even studied head to head with meditation. Um, and it does very well. So I thought, well, how about I support my husband and sit beside him, but I put my earbuds in and listen to music that calms my heart rate and calms my breathing and gets my pleasure reward center uh, it perked up in my brain. And then I can have something that supports me as a, as a musical being and help him feel like he has a meditation buddy. So that's what we're doing now. Oh, that's great. And another thing that you'd mentioned before, I wanted to hear a little bit more about it is tempo and how you, you can actually search playlists on streaming platforms. Like I didn't know you could do this. I know some people are hip to what's going on with playlists and streaming stuff. And I am a late adopter, but how can you choose music um, by like that with tempo in mind so that you can, um, you know, which is really get it to work for you better. Uh, from what I've seen that there are two main characteristics in music that, that account for quite a lot of the, the benefits we get from them. And one is, do you love it? that will have the strongest impact on many, like the, the antidepressant effects of music, the analgesic effects of music, the sleep uh, support of music. So lots, lots of those areas all have to do with how well it's perking up your dopamine and, and your pleasure chemicals in the brain. But for specific things like calming down your breathing and exercise and that sort of thing, different tempos are useful for different things. And I, I, um, I, I looked at the research of a sports psychologist 
And uh, a fast tempo music is very good for efficiency in exercise. Um, A slow tempo is very good for cool downs. So slow tempo would be the pace of a resting heart. 60 to 70 beats a minute is very good for reducing anxiety and calming down after a workout. It's actually pretty basic if you think about it. Our, Our bodies and trained to music. Our brains and trained to music, and so you want to pick the tempo that that uh, has the desired re- result. You know, if you want to be fast paced with your body, you you choose fast paced music. And it, it sounds like it, it's too simple to be true, but it is. And and so they've researched this in labs with people running to music and that kind of thing. So I have a section in my book that that goes into more detail. But you can search for playlists online or on your favorite streaming platform as 120 beats per minute or 60 beats per minute. And they'll have, I think the Otis Redding song, uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay is something like 60 beats per minute. And that would be in a playlist like that. So it's actually quite easy to to get the, the music you need through a search for BPM beats per minute. So easy, so fun. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. So what would you say, I mean, I love your story and, and just thinking about meditation and music and how to apply music to things that we want in our lives more efficiently. Um, what would you say your best advice is to women in the middle? Like you were stuck like the rest of us and you ended up not being stuck. So you created uh, this outcome that you never saw coming really by making decisions along the way. So I don't know, what can you tell us about your experience that we could apply? I almost thought of calling my book playing badly Mm. because I think one of the biggest issues in North America around interacting with music is a fear of playing badly, Mm. a fear of singing badly, a fear of being bad at music. And for me, that's very sad uh, because that accounts for a lot of what happened with me with the cello. I was extremely good, but I felt like it was never good enough. And so um, travels in other countries, Brazil and Africa and that sort of thing, to be in a, a musical culture where everyone knows the words and people sing out of tune and no one cares because it's just part of the musical texture. With all the other things going around, there's room for that. There's room for imperfection. There's room for people participating wherever they're at. As same in, in Poland, where I, I visited my, my father's family who had passed away when I was a baby and I never knew them. I went to Poland on our gap year and saw people singing at the, at the Christmas table uh, because that's what they've been doing since, the, I mean, the earliest Polish carol was composed in the 15th century. And they know who, you know, they, that song is still sung today and it's what you do on Christmas Eve. You sing around the table regardless of your musical ability or your singing ability. And so that, that applies to other things in midlife too. To be comfortable or to try doing it badly <laughs> and give yourself room to experiment. Well, okay, so you get each, each failure, like my uh, you know, decision to, to try for a PhD program, it wasn't a failure because I got in, but it didn't result in what I thought it would. But that's how you get information for the next thing. And you try an instrument and you don't like it. So that's how you get information about what 
you do love and what, what draws you, what is it that you don't like, what would have a different uh, aspect to it so that it works in music and it also works in life. So good. Just being more curious and not being such a perfectionist. But when you said playing badly, I got emotional because you're right. I mean, how much of our, our experiences have been dampered because we're too afraid to really lean into it and just have fun because we're so like hung up on being perfect or performance uh, anxiety or being at a certain level and, and, you know, fear of failure. It really squishes our enjoyment in life. (laughs) If you look at those popular shows, I mean, people are ridiculed. They're already really good to be on the show. Mm. And then they are cut down and ridiculed horribly for their singing and their performance in a way you would never see in an Olympic sport. You would never hear an Olympic judge uh, mercilessly insulting someone's pole vaulting or someone's gymnastics routine. They might say, oh, she was a little shaky on the dismount there, but they're not going to cut them down in the way that they do with music and with singing. And Why do you do think that. it happens? Why does it happen with music? There are very good historical reasons for that, and it's very difficult to sum up, but I, I go into that a lot in the first uh I guess the, the third and fourth chapter, I look at the, the wounding that has happened around music in, in uh, Western European societies. Mm-hmm. I say Western European because in Canada and the States, we are, a lot of us come from Western Europe. And so we have that legacy. Wow. That's so interesting. Well, what a treat it was to have you with us today. Thank you so much for sharing your personal story and just showing us how how music can be used for good and in your life, how your openness to reimagine your personal narrative around music and how you've turned it into a way to nourish your soul and help others with um, all of the way you're weaving in the, the health information too. It's just, it's amazing. So how can people get in touch with you and stay in your world so we know when the book comes out? I have a website. It's adrianabarton.com. And that's Adriana, A-D-R-I-A-N-A, Barton, B-A-R-T-O-N.com. And I'm also pretty active on Twitter. You can also contact me through the website. I have a, you know, an email function um, there as well. Awesome. Well, of course, I'm going to have all of this information in the show notes. So stay tuned for this brand new book that's going to be coming out soon, Wired for Music, A Search for Health and Joy Through the Science of Sound. And Adriana, thank you again. You've been an absolute pleasure. And I personally can't wait to get a hold of this book. It's been so uh, wonderful to talk to you about this book and about music because it's a great passion and joy. And uh, I, I hope people are able to take something from the book that, that is meaningful to them in their lives. Oh, I think they will. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this episode. So good, right? I know you got a lot from hearing Adriana's story and reflection on how and why she found her way back to music in her life. I wonder if her story had you thinking about your own narrative about music and what role it's played in your life. As narratives go, midlife is an opportunity for you to consider all of this, your story, your thoughts, your limiting beliefs, your self-concept, all of it. Your relationship with music, and especially performance, doesn't have to be set in stone. You can explore, you can be curious, 
you can work on enjoying music more, especially if you can do so without feeling the need to be a perfectionist. Lots of great things to think about when it comes to how to use music on purpose in midlife. Her book, Wired for Music, A Search for Health and Joy Through the Science of Sound, is available for pre-order now and will be available in fall 2022. All right, as you know, my focus as your midlife coach is to help you get unstuck, clear, and excited about your life again. We're all about being more intentional around here. (laughs) So if you want to get unstuck faster, I would love to be able to help you find that thing that you're looking for. I want to invite you to check out the Women in the Middle Academy. It's my six-month coaching program where you get all the support you need to apply what you're learning right here in the podcast, but more importantly, you get clear about what you want so that you don't have regrets. It's all about coaching, community, and curriculum to move you forward. So don't waste another second feeling stuck. Book your momentum call and we'll have a quick chat. And yes, that chat is with me. Head over to www.womeninthemiddleacademy.com. For show notes and links, head over to www.susierosenstein.com and click the podcast tab and look for episode 259. Thanks so much for listening. It's time for you to put yourself first, one thought at a time. I'm Susie Rosenstein, and I'll talk to you next week.